0: You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library, That includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com.
1: G'day, everyone. Welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host, Warwick Schiller. And if you are a regular listener of the podcast and a fan of the podcast and have enjoyed some of the episodes in the last six months, and the ones I'm kind of referring to are all of a certain bent, like, say, um... Emily Kay's daughter, or Katrina McDonald, or Alicia Main, Donegan Markagard, the hunter gatherer one with Rupert Isaacson, those types of podcasts, then I have a treat for you. Today, my guest is Jordana Annawalt. Jordana is a, uh, a Native American woman of the Hooper Valley tribe from Northern California, and she's what she calls a congruent communications coach, and she works with people and horses, uh, but there's much more to it than just that right there, and I couldn't even begin to explain exactly what she does, but I've just finished recording this conversation with her, and I was sitting there thinking, you know, this is one of the coolest podcasts I've ever recorded, so I I can't wait for you guys to listen to this. I think I need to listen to it back just to glean some more of the wisdom that, that came out of her and through her. So I hope you guys uh, enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Jordana Annewalt, welcome to the Journey on Podcast.
2: Hi, Warwick. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I'm going to refer to you as Joe because you told me you'd go as Joe. So, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Um, you know what? I don't know much about you, and I have Looked you up a little bit, but you're one of those people like, oh, this is just going to be fascinating. Just let's see where it goes. Do you want to tell? Oh, where do we start here? Why don't you tell me? Why don't you tell us what you currently do? And then we'll work back to how the heck you got to doing what you currently do. Okay.
2: Um, Currently, I uh, am the founder of an equine experiential inner standing organization called Choice Tribe that uses indigenous approaches to well-being to develop relationships between horses and humans that support congruent communication. So congruent communication is the communication between all of our bodies. So our mental body, our emotional body, our physical body, and our energy body. And I started to see connections in the way that indigenous cultures live their lives and this natural system of communication, and how nature is always seeking congruence. And when the horses connect in a place of choice, they're also looking for a place of congruence between human, horse, and environment. So Choice Tribe is an experiment, and it will always be an experiment. Every day that I walk out with a student or a set of horses, I have no expectations I'm excited to see what arises that's new or what challenges the information that we've already been given and step into this place of unknown, step into this place of let's let's see where this takes us and what the horses can share with us and how we can deepen our own understanding of what being alive in this human body, being on this planet is all about through the horse. So we do all sorts of things in the program. We work with horses, um, not just in task-based work. Um, so I do have students who own horses and uh, or, or come out to the barn and work with the choice herd. And we focus on connecting with individual horses and building relationships to where you can ride bareback and bridleless on property, off property. The horses go wherever they want to go, but it's in partnership with humans. We also do movement activities with horses, so yoga with horses, dance with horses. We do sound healing with horses, um, meditation with horses, Qigong with horses. So it's bringing these indigenous practices which are movement, creativity, storytelling, music into the arena of horse and seeing where that goes. So we do all sorts of stuff. Um, Again, I never know what a day is going to look like for me I always step out, you know, drum in hand when I show up to a session, I'm like, I don't know, maybe we'll drum, maybe we'll be laying in the dirt with the horses, you know, over us. Um, yeah, it's kind of big.
1: <laughs> it sounds like it. We're gonna get to the drumming. You just mentioned the drum. we're gonna get to the drumming here at some point in time. Um, how long have you this how long have you been doing this experiment?
2: This experiment started in two thousand and nineteen um, and it started. I walked through my horse herd one day at the time I had a natural horsemanship program called Harmony with Horses, and I genuinely felt that how we were approaching interacting with the horses was absolutely reciprocal that the horses wanted to participate. Um, we rode bridleless already, we rode bareback often, um, but there was still. Here's the task, and here's what's going to happen if, if you don't do the task. And I walked through my herd one day after summer to get a month off, and my first ever school horse walked up to me, and clear as day, he said, you are treating us like slaves, and just as your people were colonized, you are exploiting us for your own benefit. And it stopped me. one. I had never heard the horses that way. So when I hear the animals or the plants communicate, it hits me like in my, my gut, in, in my stomach. I, I feel it there, and then it, it comes up to my mind, but it doesn't come in words. This was the first time I heard words that, okay, okay and they were pretty powerful words. So I remember walking into the house. My parents are uh, got to quit their jobs and come to work for the business, so... Uh, they live on site, and um, at that time they did. We sat down. And I was like, "We can't keep doing this. We, I, I can't keep teaching horsemanship or riding. Or I like, this. This is over. What do we do?" And since we were on that break, um, I sat with it for a couple weeks and sat with the horses, sat with family, and then as we started to get back into that time when students would return to the barn. I sent out an email and asked for everyone to come. And we sat down at a roundtable conversation. And I told them what had happened and said, how do we go forward? And it was the kids who said, well, Joe, why can't we just give them a choice like you give Honeybee? And Honeybee is my first horse. that uh, my, She's my first ever horse. I still have her. She lives on the homestead in Hawaii and not here in Oregon with me. Um she I knew nothing about horses when I purchased her and she was a 14-month-old orphan. Um and I had no knowledge of how to deal with even a horse and I was 16 and she put me in the ICU a couple times. Um and very quickly in those first 3-4 years of having her working with different trainers finding the woman who I began to study under as an instructor, I learned that this horse was, everything was on her terms. And so from that point forward, in Mind and Honey's relationship, we worked at choice. There was no restraint. There was no coercion or bribery. So when I say at choice, we don't use any, like, clicker training. There's no food involved. Um, They actually, if they say no, okay, and we will ground ourselves. We'll do a practice that's about me, the human, and then re reapproach with the question. And if they continue to say no, okay, no big deal. So the kids had watched for years as I would interact this way with my personal horse, and then they would be interacting a different way with the school herd. And I was like, yeah, well, we can try that. And just about that time, the documentary that Elsa Sinclair put out. Um,
1: Timing Wild, yes. We had,
2: yep, we had watched as a, as a barn movie night, and the kids, one of their questions was, why aren't there any movies about, like, just regular people doing that? Of course trainers can do that. Like, you guys spend all day with horses. But do you think if we gave the horses a choice, everybody could have that kind of relationship? I was like, I don't know. We should find out. Um... And then through that conversation, the kids were like, what if we brought art? Like, we would love to play with clay before the horses or maybe after the horses. Could we do skits with them where we make costumes and we teach them to move around at choice, but they have to do a play? What if we did meditation? So the kids started to build this idea, and we, I mean, it was an instantaneous, like, all the tack in the barn disappeared. We went from having, you know, a regular tack room to be like, oh, it's an empty room with nothing in it. Cause we didn't need it anymore. And it just grew. Um, we started a pilot program called horse. It was an acronym. And it was multi-generational. That was also really important that we had every generation represented in the class. So One of the things that I believe is missing from the world today and our culture is that we no longer live in multi-generational family units or extended family units, and that that is unnatural and detrimental in a way to how we evolve and how we learn and how we grow. So this pilot program spanned three months, and our youngest student was seven and the oldest student was 66 and um i think there was 13 or 14 of us men and women boys and girls and we got together and we reimagined what it could be like to be with horses if they had a choice and one how were we going to get the horses to make the choices we wanted was the first kind of um version of that program and within you know halfway through that program we quickly realized that it wasn't about the horses at all it was about the humans and the humans going inward and that the horses you know weren't they were a reflection of everything that was going on with the humans and not just the human they were interacting with but the whole herd of humans and the energy field of everything in the environment so That was a really, really eye-opening experience and solidified the knowing for me that, okay, we're moving in this direction and we're not ever returning to the natural horsemanship realm that I had spent the last decade in, which was scary because that was me, a choice to shut down a business um, and to ask people to come on a journey into the unknown. I said, I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, parents struggled because they wanted to be able to see external rewards. There, there was this in, uh, extrinsic motivation that they were asking for, and I just knew that that wasn't that wasn't what they were going to get out of it. So,
1: these are the parents of the kids that you're helping,
2: right? Some of them, and so we went from. I lost about 90% of my client base during that transition um, because the kids weren't, you couldn't see the successes. Their posting trot got better or they were able to hit, you know, this distance over a jump anymore. It was, they were showing up to sessions and they were saying things. And even the adults, like I'm having clearer communication with the people at work or I was able to stand up to myself at the bully in the lunchroom. They were developing skills that were supporting them away from the barn in the rest of their life. So there was major progress and benefit happening, but it wasn't measurable in the way that this style of society, the system is set up for it to be measured. So um, we kept going, though. I kept going. Um, We've always had horses, too, that come from the rescue. I work really closely with a rescue here in Central Oregon called Mustangs to the Rescue, and I tend to take the horses. I'm like the last stop. I'm the one who gets the horses with the big behavior problems or the major uh, physical deficiencies. And that was just such a beautiful pairing for this work too. And to see how the horses chose the people and the people ended up coming to understand what the horse was trying to tell them about themselves. Um, so it was just this this period of time. It was about four months that that program was being built and then occurred. And I knew that, okay, we're onto something. And, and it, was, it lit my soul up. It was the first time that I got to walk out into the arena, to go out onto property, and to be absolutely stoked to work with horses and humans. And I knew when I got to that point, I was like, wow, you really hated being a horse trainer. And I did. I wasn't a good horse trainer because I could feel and hear what the horses were saying. And so when I had to give them back to their owners, I knew that the issues were going to re-arise because it was the owner who actually needed the work, not the horse. So I was like, oh, whew, that's over. I can now just like, this is what I want to do. And it brought in the part of my um, indigenous spirituality and my, my cultural belief system um, so seamlessly that it was just like, okay, keep going. Um, yeah, so it kept evolving and i ended up going to western australia that fall the same year that we launched that program um on a series of synchronicities i didn't have a passport i never thought i would leave the pacific northwest i am i love northern california it's where my tribe is from and the oregon coastline and Uh, I was really sure I was never leaving this area. And then several people in the series of three months showed up in my life, and they all brought up Perth, Australia. And these people came to me in ways that had really significant meaning. And then one day, I saw an offering, and I was like, oh, that looks interesting, and looked it up. And sure enough, it was being offered in Perth. And I was like, I'm going to Perth. And so when I went to Perth, um, I ended up meeting the shaman who I returned to Australia to go and study with. Um, and that led me to Indonesia to work with uh, a medicine man there, and then um, to Hawaii, and then home here. And that was just the, the solidifying experience of, okay, indigenous approaches to well-being across the entire globe all nature-based. It doesn't matter where you pluck a set of people from. And we are all indigenous. We all understand the rhythms and the cycles of the seasons. We are in awe at the way that the stars track across the sky. We feel with our entire sensory body just as the horse does. So I wanted to use and figure out how to draw upon the archetype of the horse, but also the horse as a physical being in the way that they live their lives to help people return to balance within themselves, within community, with the natural world. And that's where we are. We're still in that beautiful space of exploration and working with new facilitators and trying new things. And that I don't think that will ever end. I think we'll always, Choice Tribe will always be an experiment and an exploration into what is possible. Let's find out.
1: I have so many questions. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> um, where am I going to start here? Let, well, tell me about your in Indigenous roots. You are Native American.
2: I am Native American. Um, so, interestingly, both of my parents are the are adopted into the families they were raised by. Um, And they're the only adopted children. Actually, my dad has an adopted brother, too. But the rest of their families are biologically related. So my parents somehow are these two adopted humans who ended up together. And so growing up, we never knew anything about our actual heritage. We don't look like the rest of our extended family, We have dark hair and dark skin. And we did know that my mom was Native American just because through the adoption in the 60s, they, you know, had to disclose to my grandma that my mom was ethnic. And so we knew that there was Native American ancestry somewhere, but um, no connection to what tribe or the actual culture. So it was when I was in my early 20s, I was 21, that we ended up getting to meet my mom's biological mom and that side of our family for the first time on the reservation in Northern California. So we are Hoopa, and it's on the Hoopa Valley tribe in Humboldt County, um, and it was crazy to go somewhere for the first like to to go somewhere for the first time in your life and the moment you drive into the valley where the trinity river runs through and and you enter the reservation to be hit with this feeling of like whoa i've been here before this is home and to make our way down to my grandma's house and to see people who looked like us for the first time and like oh that's where my cheeks come from and Whoa, it was just, it was such a trip. My mom looks just like her sisters. And um, to feel that all of the experiences I'd had as a child, because I've talked to the plants and the animals and and heard things in the wind and seen shapes in the fire since I was so small. And my mom was, I'm so grateful that she always supported us in that. She said... Uh, you know, to always, always pay attention to the things that are happening around you. Even if they don't make sense, that doesn't matter. Um, you know, follow your dreams, actually pay attention to what's happening in the dream state. So all of these things that I'd already done, I was like, oh, this makes sense. It's like in my blood. This is why I've been doing these things. And at the time, my grandmother was the chairman for the tribe, like the head of the political sector. Um, and didn't realize until we got to spend more time there um, that our family is um, actually connected to the the center of the tribe. So we were able to go down to our traditional home site, which is just down on the river. It's called Tuck and Milden. And we got to go into the traditional house that our bloodline comes from and sit around this fire pit. And as we're sitting there with my aunties and my cousins, they, you know, like so this fire pit has been studied by Humboldt State University and it's been carbon dated back ten thousand years. And like to sit in this space and be like, wow, I'm in this place, sitting on ground around a place of sacred knowing that's been in my line for ten thousand years was just really, really powerful. Um And what it did was it opened, like, the key to a door that I didn't even know was possible that existed, and it opened. And the level of awakening in my spiritual knowing accelerated. Like, I just—stuff started to come in really fast. I didn't know what was happening, how to make sense of the things I was seeing or hearing— and I had some support from family on the reservation, um, but I don't live there. So I it was navigating it kind of on my own. And what I know now is it wasn't on my own at all. That's what the horses were doing. Um, so the horses have been—they've been a guide. And for me in my life, this lifetime— but horses have been a guide for humans from the beginning of human existence. That's what horses agreed to come here to do, was to walk beside us to keep us in balance. They're like the, the giant check that's like, ah, humans, come on. You're falling out of congruence with nature. You're falling out of congruence with yourself. They're our way of gauging where we're steering away from the path that is aligned with the laws of nature. So, um, yeah. Yeah. My tribe horses aren't like wouldn't have been on the lands a long time ago. They're not a part of the culture. Um, there are horses on the reservation, but it's not like we were a horse people right. so there's there's no connection um, there it's just a a place to know that the things that our ancestors have gone through and that we've had happen in past lives do play a role in what's happening in our life today. That's what my, my heritage has taught me.
1: So you were what, 21 before you went there?
2: Yeah, that was the first time.
1: Okay. So I got, I got, I got lots of questions here. (laughs) So you're both your parents adopted, they're both native American. Um, were they adopted by white people, mm. and yes. so their upbringing was, you know, yep. white America. Yep. Okay, so, and, and so was yours, I guess. Yes. Okay. Very so much then, so. my questions is like when you, you know, when you s- said that you could you could always sense things and hear things in the wind and see shapes in the fire and that's not normal. For the US, I didn't culture. know
2: that, right? Yeah, and
1: so you know, like you obviously have friends at school. What I mean, you know, do, my question here is: Do you tell people about this stuff? Do you keep it to yourself? Do you share it, and people go, "You're a wackadoodle"? You know, like how was how was that having having those abilities? And I, I am aware that we're all supposed to have them. And, and for the most part, it's been, um, you know, culture has, our culture has told us we shouldn't have them. And the other thing I think too is, like for me, I am of English and Irish ancestry. And if you go far enough back, like far enough back, we were indigenous to somewhere. But that's been a long time. Whereas with your ancestry, it's not that long ago. If you think about it, um, that you guys lived in community with nature. And I'm wondering, apart from the, you know, our culture says that's silly. Don't you know that that's not that doesn't work like that. Whatever. I'm just wondering when you were talking before. I'm wondering if if there's a combination of the two. Whereas like you know. Us white people, it's been a long time since we lived in nature like that. Whereas you guys, it's not that long ago. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, why it, it, you weren't raised necessarily in a family that that um, really embraced that. Even though it sounds like your mum said, yes, that's perfectly normal. Yeah, how, how how was that growing up with with those? Senses working, living around people whose senses didn't work that way, and even they weren't even aware that those senses are available.
2: That's a great question. Uh, it was very difficult. <clears throat> uh, I was I was bullied through elementary school and into junior high, which is seventh grade, eighth grade in the United States, and um, it. Was so bad that when I was 12, I attempted to take my life and ended up hospitalized. And it wasn't from what I was hearing or what I was experiencing. My connection to what I couldn't see was very strong and it was comforting to me. Um, you know, my mom learned early in my life that I saw things at night in my dreams that would come to fruition within the next couple of days. And I remember when my great grandma passed, I remember coming out to the kitchen and I saw her crying and I was probably eight at the time and just saying, mom, it's okay. Nana went over the rainbow bridge. Like I like had really seen her walk over this bridge in my dream, this rainbow bridge that night. And I remember the look of bewilderment on her face because I had just come out of my bedroom and woken up. I, I didn't, wasn't told that Nana had passed away, and my mom's sitting there grieving after getting off the phone with her mom. And there was just a series of events that happened my whole childhood like that, where I'd see something, and my parents would cancel trips because I'd see some catastrophic event happening that they'd be a part of. And so they'd be like, nope, we're not going on the cruise ship. Nope, we're not going to go do that. Um I found a lot of support at home with my siblings. Um, As kids, we were really close. We were always outside climbing trees and playing. So school was like the thing that I had to get through every day. And it was made more difficult. The the bullying was made more difficult because I was also am a very intellectual person. And I love learning. And school was boring. It just moved too slow. And then I'm getting all of this harassment emotionally. And it wasn't because I talked about what I heard or what I was experiencing. I was just different. Um, and I saw through surface, like I, I, facades have never been strong for me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I see through that. I see who you are. I see your intention. And if it's malicious or if it's hurtful, I am not going to confront you. I'm just going to back away. Um, but I feel I was confronting in just who I was kind of being an independent I'll do my own thing, um, kid to the girls who I had as peers. So, um, that suicide attempt though, was the greatest, the greatest blessing of my whole life. Um, when i I so when I woke up in the hospital, the psychiatric facility, the first thought I had was, "Oh my gosh, I don't belong here." And I had been suffering from severe depression, and I was very unhappy um, but I knew that I didn't belong there. And then, within a few minutes of, you know, being awake, this memory came back across my awareness and it was of a being that had come to me while I was sedated. So when they took me from the emergency room and transported me to the psychiatric facility, I was sedated. Um, I remember just being really in and out of consciousness and seeing all sorts of things, but this being came to me and I now know that being to be my guardian angel. Um, that travels with me through my whole incarnation this lifetime. And she said, you have a choice. You can choose to live in the story that's being created around you by life's happenings, or you can choose to create your own story. It's really very simple. You have a choice to be happy, or you have a choice to continue to live in the situation and allow it to make you sad. And it was really powerful because they wanted me to come out of the hospital with this plan of a huge list of medications. And I was 12, but I was very, very opposed to that. And I I made it clear to my parents that I would agree to the doctors that I would be on those medications and I would do all their things, but that I wasn't going to and that I was capable of doing this on my own. And that was what that that saying from that being gave me, sorry, was that this... um, i was absolutely capable i that's the the greatest gift of the human spirit is we are we are truly so resilient and we can be absolutely relentless when we want something we just keep going for it and that i wanted to be happy i wanted to feel like the animals felt and like the natural environment felt but all these things happening around me and the system of school and the system of family structure being, you know, a, a nuclear family, all of those things were really hard. And I couldn't change them. But I could change how I perceived them. And I could choose my role in those situations. And if I allowed them to affect my emotions in a way that was detrimental, or if I took them as lessons and integrated them differently. And As I think back on that now, I'm like, wow, that was a lot for a 12-year-old to get, but I got it. It was like from that moment forward, my motto kind of became, you have a choice. And as I've grown up, people have thought I'm kind of callous. Because I'll be like, Well, you have a choice. I've I also still have the possibility of slipping back into major depression. And I know I can catch myself and I sit there. I'm like, you have a choice. I can't change all the stuff going on around me, but I can change how I perceive it, how I feel about it. I can make choices to change situations or relationships. Like I have a choice in every moment of every day. So that experience um, was really powerful. And what it did was it caused me to transition to home study um, and out of the school system, which we moved at that point up into the Sierra Nevadas. And so I was in the mountains and, I graduated high school. I mean, I went through 8th eighth, eighth through 12th grade in two and a half years. So I graduated high school when I was um, 15 and was just like, I want to just get on with life. Like I got stuff to do. Um, and I was working outside at that time. I went to work when I was 14 as a snowboard instructor, and I loved being outside. Um, and that's where I started to find... It wasn't in the group of my peers that I found acceptance. It was when I started to interact with people of other ages that were open to the idea that yeah, there is something more and they had already moved beyond adolescence into adulthood where they could formulate their own ideas. That was the hardest thing about being a kid with what I was experiencing with all the gifts is that kids are shaped by their families' and their parents' belief systems. And anything outside of that is a challenge. But when I started to interact with people who were older, I wasn't a challenge, I, I wasn't challenging them anymore. It was just like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> okay, <laughs> she's interesting. Um, and to, to circle back to, you know, your comment about, right, being a white-bodied person that's so far away from their indigenous lifestyle that is a part of your DNA. It's never gone away. We all enter this world, and that first breath we take when we come in as human animals, we, we know everything about the natural world. We are we are in alignment with the way that nature works. And it's only through the conditioning in our very early years of life that that's all turned off. And that's all it is. It's just turned off. It doesn't go away. It's all in there. And I feel that right now there there is this big pulling in so many people's hearts, spirits, minds across the globe who don't have this close timeline connection to their indigenous heritage. There's, there's a long period of time between when their ancestors lived on the land and when where we are now. I don't believe that that matters. That, that poll is, is getting really strong for people like, wait, but I want to remember, I want that knowledge, I want to experience what that experience, you know, what that provides Because it brings peace, it brings balance, it brings a sense of home and oneness. Oh, yes, this is why I'm here. And I'm just one piece in this huge thing and I'm really not a piece at all because I am the whole thing, while I'm also a part of it. Um, So it's an interesting topic because I work with a lot of white-bodied individuals who don't have ties. To or don't even know their ancestry, and they feel like I don't have a right. And my goal, my hope is to just start to reframe that so people recognize like we're all human, we're all indigenous to the earth. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, or if you know where your people were sitting 10,000 years ago, that doesn't matter. You're human. And the horses are like, thank goodness you guys are finally waking up to this. <laughs> you know, they've, they've watched our whole history. They've walked alongside us. And I'm sure just been like, oh, man, what, what are the humans doing now? Look at, wow, they're really off path. Okay. So um, I think that we, it's just a coming home to yourself. I just always found comfort in my gifts because I knew that they were my connection back to my original essence my connection back to nature.
1: Well, I'm not sure where to go next. Hey, I want, where I'd probably like to go next is, can you tell me about what happened in Perth, how you met the shaman? Um, was he Australian Aboriginal? She.
2: She. She. Ooh. No, actually, Actually, she's not even Australian. Um, she's South America or South African. Really? She's a South African shaman, um, and yeah, her name is Leslie. And <laughs> again, how did I meet Leslie? So, a several just again very synchronistic things happened like someone showing up to my ranch. I had a business called Harmony with Horses in Bend, Oregon, and one day this woman sh- showed up without an appointment and I see her wandering around outside so I go out, "Hi, can I help you?" She was like, "Oh yeah. Well, I just wanted to stop in. I'm visiting Bend, but I own Harmony with Horses Sedona and I s- came across you and I just wanted to come out and see what you're doing and We do a lot of the same stuff and I'm going to be moving to Bend and I want a place for my horses. So we were in like a time warp where we just spent what seemed like hours. It was 20 minutes walking around the barn, looking at the horses, talking. And one of the things that she said was, oh gosh, you know, I have these power places on earth. Do you have power places? And I was like, "What, what, what do you mean by that? And she said, oh, like there are three places on earth that are just the places that I draw the most peace and the most wisdom from. She's like, one of them is in the redwoods of Northern California, right along the coast near a place called Arcata, which is 20 miles away from Hoopa, the reservation. Then she said, oh, you know, the other place is, where was the other place? can't even remember the third place, the second place. But the third place, she said, it's this place um, called the Pinnacles out in Western Australia, just north of Perth. And this was the second person who'd brought Perth up in about a month. Just, I'd never heard of Perth, Australia. So I'm paying attention and um, gets brought up a third time by another person. Without me giving in, like, I'm not leading. I'm not, I'm not dropping that in. It just shows up. I'm like, okay, paying attention, universe. What's in Perth, Australia? Scrolling Instagram one day, and I I hear, like, a sponsored ad that kind of just came on. And I heard the accents. And at the time, I thought that they were British. And I was like, oh, what a, what a beautiful accent. And I'm, like, listening <laughs> to what these women are saying. And I was like, I have to go to this. So I, like, click on it. And I go through. And I'm like, no way. So it was the second year that this group of women had put on an event called Sisterhood Rising, a wild woman weekend in Perth, Australia. And so I ran inside. I was like, mom, I have to go to this. And she was like, okay. And I was like, I don't have a passport. Like this is happening in seven weeks. I've got to like expedite all this stuff. I have to go to this. Um, And she was like, well, I have to go too. I was like, mom, you don't like flying. You don't have a passport. She's like, I'm going. So my mom and I, hold this together and flew to Australia. And the moment that we landed, we flew into Melbourne. And it also was like, our flight got canceled in San Francisco because the plane's lavatory was broken and they had moved all of the passengers off of the Qantas flight onto a United flight. But you had to have gotten an email to sign up for that transfer and we didn't get the email. So like, we're at the airport ready to leave and there's no one at Like the flight's not happening, and I'm freaking out. Like, I'm supposed to be going to Australia, and it's not gonna happen. And it was just another moment of like, no, visualize yourself stepping off the plane in Australia. Hold the story in your head that you want to happen. Hold it. Don't let it go. Don't start letting the fears and the what ifs and what coulds creep in. Mm. You're going to Australia. You're in Perth because you have to go to Perth. When we got into Australia and stepped off the plane, It was a more overwhelming feeling than the feeling I had when I stepped onto the reservation for the first time in Hoopa. There's not a single place on this planet that I have ever felt more at home than in Australia. Um, And just my connection to the land there, what I hear from the land, on another level, I didn't think was possible. So we get to Perth. Um, We arrived actually on Halloween, which that was the other synchronicity of how I got there was I wear this peace sign ring on my middle finger. Um, It was a friend who passed when I was 18, and he was the first human that I was able to communicate with directly on the other side. And it was a devastating experience to lose a friend. Um, And then for him to start showing up and sharing things was one, I thought I was going crazy um, until the things he was showing me would start to happen. Like He'd come to me in my dreams and show me like, hey, this is going to happen. I'm really sorry. Or heads up, pay attention to this. And then those things would happen in the following days. So Mike is has always been a guiding force in my life. And the message that he made very clear was, I know we were supposed to do things together in this life, but we still are. I can just help from this side, and will work better as a team if one of us is there and one of us is here. So the fact that I arrived in Perth on Mike's birthday, which the ring is also, that was the first sign, the person who first brought up Perth, it was a connection to this ring um, and, and the last name Peace. And I get to Australia, I get to Perth, I'm like blown away. I'm like, this is home, never leaving, love it. This is my place. And uh, we do the retreat, which is great. It was so fun. I remember uh, everyone was like, you guys flew all the way across the world to come to this? Everyone was local who went to this. You know, was was from the greater Perth area. I think the farthest someone had traveled was from down south from Albany. Um, it was strange that we were these foreigners who'd flown across the world to come to this three-day thing. But it was, I had to be there. And... Uh, Leslie was facilitating a drum dreaming workshop that I attended. And when we signed in, I didn't know we were signing up for like a raffle when we put our names down and our emails. And great experience. Mom and I spend the next two weeks backpacking around um, Western Australia. And I don't want to leave. Like As the days got closer to having to get on that plane, I turned into like a toddler. I was hysterically crying all the time. I was so upset that I had to go, I had to leave. Um, And it was visceral. Like it felt like my heart was being ripped out of my body. Like I have to stay here. Um, But I had horse clients back home. Like I had taken three weeks off of work. It was, I had to go home. And the night before we got on our plane, I got a Facebook message from Leslie. Hey, gorgeous are you and your mom the Americans that were at the retreat? Yeah, she's like, well, you won the raffle. Oh, what raffle? And she's like, you get a free session with me. Um, How do you want to do that? We can do it virtually, or you can come to my place. I'd love to come to your place, but we're leaving tomorrow. And she's like, oh, well, I happen to live right by the airport. Come Come out to my farm. So we go out to the farm the morning that we're supposed to fly out and do a session with her which is traveling into the dreaming with the drum. And she finds out that we're Indigenous and um, just said, oh, I have, you know, a couple other women who I'm working with that are also of strong Indigenous ancestry. And I, I would love if you, you know, continue to work with, Within our circle of women. You know, when you get home, we can do a lot of stuff virtually. Okay, that's really exciting. Go home. They, like, I was the last person down the bridge onto that plane. I was, and I'm, my mom was just like, please pull it together. Like, you are 29 years old. What are you doing? Hysterically crying, throwing a fit. I didn't want to leave. We touched down in um, San Francisco, and I had a message from Leslie saying, I have been directed to ask you to come back. I'm starting a course in a few weeks, and I'd like you to come um, be a part of it, both as a student but also to learn how to facilitate this work, because I believe you're called to it. So, But you have to come back in two weeks. So I restructured my entire business. Uh, I went out and bought cameras and, like, speakers and headsets for all of my students to wear and we decided that my mom would travel around to all my clients and live video stream all my lessons to me while I was abroad Um, and so this is right before COVID this is in 2019 uh I left in December and we started live streaming everything so I'd wake up at three in the morning go down and sit on the beach with my laptop um teach lessons that were happening here in the afternoon, and spend my days working with Leslie. Um, And a lot of that was remote work, so I, I was given a lot of like homework, you know. I did a, during that period of time, I traveled into the dreaming on the beat of the drum multiple times a day. While I was in Australia, my grandfather had a massive stroke and went into a coma. And that was the first time that I worked with someone who was in between planes, in between the spirit realm and the physical plane. And uh, Leslie supported and and guided me through that process of being the energy that would enter in and go and have conversations. He didn't know he was in a coma. So that was the first, like, going and finding him and bringing him and, and showing him himself in the hospital room and my grandma over him. And and I did this from the other side of the world there in the San Francisco Bay Area and getting to the place where, you know, the doctors were saying things and then I'd call and say things in my You know, aunt and uncles would be like, wow, so you're really kind of confirming what the doctors are saying, which my grandpa didn't want to come back into his body. He didn't want to have to be in a hospital anymore or go through medical treatment. And if if he was able to pull out of this, if they kept him on life support and, and worked to get him through this, he was going to be hospital bound for the rest of his life. And so getting to navigate that experience of sharing with someone that you love it's okay to make the choice to go. Like, you can, but can you please come and let Nani know that you love her because this is going to be really hard on her. Um, And I remember the day that they turned off the ventilator and I was sitting on a beach um, and these two white seagulls came, like sat down, like in front of me landed um, and they were touching. And then one of them just took off and flew. And the other one stayed there and watched. And it was this, this very symbolic representation of, you know, of my grandpa transitioning over. Um, and that that experience getting to be there, there was things that I saw in the dreaming that I was like, I don't know. So there's like this guy that looks like this sitting next to him and then there's this lady. And my grandma would be like, that was his best friend who passed several years ago, like, that, that the man you just described, does he look like this? And I'd see a picture. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was—I didn't know these people. So it was very affirming that that whole time in Australia, the work that I was doing. And it was very—Leslie was there in the—she'd give me a task, and then she'd say, go explore, go into the dreaming, go see what you find out, and then come back— um, and we'll talk about it. And we then left for Bali. So she was holding a retreat for healers, a healers healing retreat with some of her advanced students. And I was invited to go. So we we ended up in Bali and spent some time traveling around, seeing different healers there. Um, and there was a day that we went to a... Man's house, Made Luna. And it was really, really neat in Indonesia to sit with the different healers because we would sit with medicine men who were Balinese Hindu healers and Muslim Hindu healer or Muslim Balinese healers. So from these two very different religious standpoints, and they talk to you like, so if I, I'm going to tell you right now what I would say if I was like your brother, And now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say from my religious standpoint. And then now I'm going to talk to you from nature. And nature was always the same. Like the feedback they had always was the same, but it came out so different when they would put it through their religious lens or even through their familial lens. And so the time that I spent with a group of women doing that, this big sinking into me was, we're all the same. It's coming back to nature, nature is the answer like it's it's the same wisdom that I've heard my family on the reservation talk about. It's the same wisdom that you hear you know the Inuits talk about like it's it's all the same. I ended up staying in Indonesia by myself, which wasn't planned um I just i couldn't leave there, and I went and spent some more time with made Luna um who was the Muslim Balinese healer. And he dropped in so much insight that I didn't realize, I didn't know, I didn't have any context for it because it didn't pan out until just like the last 18 months. And I'm like, I'll laugh like, (laughs) that's what he meant. Um, And, you know, he very much prophesized what is happening now. You're you're gonna go back to America. And I was like, No, I'm not. He's like, Oh yeah, you're gonna go back and you're so mad about it. I was like, I'm not going back to America. Like I'm going back to Perth and I'm gonna figure out how to stay there. That's where I'm I'm flying back there and I'm not leaving Perth. Uh and he, you know, he said, just keep pay attention to what the animals tell you. Pay attention to the things you see in your dreams. Those aren't Things that you're imagining, their inspirations, their clues, their compasses to point you where you're supposed to be walking. Pay attention, pay attention. You know, and next time you come back, next time you sit with me, you will have things to tell me about the compasses in my life. Um, and I so value the time that I spent um, at Made's house, and I ended up having to come home in the middle of COVID. Um, I was the last flight out of Bali and into San Francisco. And that kind of then started that all like,
1: of... Is that like the middle of March?
2: Yeah, end of March. Um, because I wasn't going to come back. I was going to stay and teach all my lessons. I was still working. It was great. I didn't need to be here. <clears throat> Different time zones. I could just wake up super early and do do everything there. Um, but I, my family... it it was best that I come back and be physically on the ranch if something were to happen. And being on the other side of the world during all of that and then coming back to the States was just a fascinating experience in itself because the States felt there was this sense of... I mean, it was sheer terror. Like, the energy of coming back into America was like terror. Everyone was terrified. And I just spent time a third world country um that uh, no it, we weren't terrified there was actually you were stopped at checkpoints all the time on the road just to be given hand sanitizer by the police like you were stopped at checkpoints to have your temperature shake taken they were really proactive about it from the the early stages so you felt really safe um and then i came back here and you know everyone was worried about toilet paper and um <laughs> uh it was a so it was a huge like tch, tch, comparing of polarities like going from this place where people didn't have a lot of money, but that wasn't the currency that was important to them. The currency that was valuable was the currency of the health of the land, the health of the sea, the health of their family they were focused on is is the land still able to provide us food? We just need to put more love and more gratitude now into the places where our food's coming because we might have shortages. We need to acknowledge how important our family structures and our friends and our neighbors are. And that was that that next piece of choice tribe, that it was like the horses and nature, but community. Where's our community? Where is our sense of tribe? And the horse world for me had never given me that sense of tribe. The horse world had actually made me feel very singled out or like I needed, to, I needed to fit in. I needed to put on a show. Like It wasn't the community that I think so many of us seek. And so it was like, okay, well, I want to create a community then for people who are in love with the horse. But don't want to have any of the expectations or judgments around around that to be able to come in and, and be open and explore so
1: wow um, can you tell me more about Leslie what was her lineage as far as like where did she learn and what was her what was her um ethnic background and you know where did she learn her stuff and Do you know much about that?
2: You know, that's a great question, and I don't. Um, Leslie is a channel, and things come through to her. Mm. Um, She is very connected to the Australian land as well, so something that came out in my work with her was that I saw a couple of my past lives when I was in Australia, um, and she also had past lives when she was in australia which was the draw to be there Um, the drum dreaming so teaching medicine drum dreaming was something that came into her as a channeled a channeled guidance and she uses nature and the wisdom she gets from that place to provide the healing and the growth space for people to come in and receive
1: can you tell me more about the 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 drum <clears throat> the drum journeys? That sounds yeah. pretty fascinating. To me.
2: Yeah. Um, so drumming I'm not musical. And I was never drawn to create sound or music. And then I started to see this circle when I was asleep at night in my dreams, like this circle with this line through it. It's actually the drum that's right here above me over here. I started to see this circle and I didn't know what it was and I couldn't figure it out. And then I started to hear drumming all the time. I was like, I don't know what this is. And then I went to Australia, met Leslie. Oh, it's a drum. And the drum represents, the beat of the drum is linked to the heartbeat that we have and the heartbeat of Mother Earth. And so the drum beat allows us to travel in an original state of consciousness. So when we enter the world, we're in our original state of consciousness. When we follow the beat of the drum, we get to return to that place of original consciousness, which is where there's no separation between this timeline and the infinite timelines that are out there. So we can move through all spaces and places, and experience things that have happened in the past, things that are coming to happen, and things that are happening right now in other places. And when I first started to work with the drum as a recipient of the healing, um, you know, my first journey of of just going in and asking, you know, I, my intention was please. Please show me the significance of the drum. And I was taken back into my mother's womb, and I could just feel her heartbeat. And it was, remember where you come from. Remember that you are energy, and you get to be in physical form, but the energy signature is that heartbeat. And everything has a heart that has that frequency around you. The trees have a heartbeat. The horses have a heartbeat. The earth itself has a heartbeat. Listen to the heartbeat of the ocean in the pattern of the tides and, and the waves crashing against a beach. Like It was this... Ties everything together. It's... it's uh, the drums that I hold space for people to birth and that I drum with are circular... And they represent the sacred hoop of life, the continual motion that is always flowing. It can be represented by the seasons or the elements, the stages of life, the experience of going through grief and love. And I had such a connection to it. And then I was so torn when I got back to the States if I could continue to work with the drum. Because in my tribe, drumming is not a practice. And I didn't know if this was going to be infringing or stepping. So I talked with my grandma. And her advice was, you should talk to the elder council, meaning the elder council in the sky, uh, my ancestors. And so I took a day and I sat out in nature and sat up against this big, beautiful ponderosa pine. And my great grandma, I never met her, but she talks to me in our language, Hoopa, which I don't, I don't know it. Um, I I can hear it, Um, but I get these strong images when she talks. And she asked me if what my reasoning was for wanting to play the drum and move into this space of medicine drum dreaming and sharing that with others. And my response was that it reminded me of oneness and it was the remembering of equality and reciprocity and that that was, it's a way to touch people in a very soft An accessible way to allow them to come to that remembering on their own. And then she like threw a sunflower down at my forehead, you know, in my mind's eye, threw this sunflower, which was her flower. It was her like, then you have my permission. And I came across the hide that is that I kept seeing that that circle with the line through it ended up being a horsehide drum that I, that was my the first drum that I birthed here and the drum that I use for all the work I do now. Um, and it keeps, that keeps evolving too. The horses love the drum. When we do drum work in the paddock, the horses come over and just sink. They're like trees that grow roots into the ground. They're like, Oh wow, this feels so good. Um, and it, allows us to to travel from heart to heart to heart, whether that's a circle of human hearts and then the horse hearts join us or human heart to earth heart to tree heart. It's, it's a connection of of that original, that original rhythm of life, the heartbeat.
1: Did you, speaking of sound, when you were in Australia, did you have anything to do with the didgeridoo at all? Because there's, Something about that, that that vibration that goes through you, there's something pretty amazing about that.
2: No, I didn't when I was in Australia. Um, But just recently I've been doing some community work and a young man came to one of my drum dreaming classes uh, and while he was journeying, I'm drumming and leading people through this this experience. This energy kept appearing from where he was laying in his direction, and it was this bright blue light and these symbols, and it had this strange sound, and it just kept coming. I was like, "That is so strange." And then he ended up putting up a class, and it was didgeridoo sound healing. I was like, "Oh, that's funny." So I went to his class um and laid there and the same place that I traveled to with the drum is the place that the didgeridoo took me mm. and there was an aboriginal man who met me and he unzipped the sky like the horizon like unzipped it and and smiled at me and then just like pulled back pulled back where he had unzipped the sky just like opened up and we stepped into this Vast expanse of black with like shimmering diamond stars everywhere. And then I his chuckle, he chuckles, and then I have no idea where I go. I totally disappear. So the didgeridoo has become the instrument that I actually sit with my friend often now and use that as a um, way to travel. I don't know what work I'm doing out there or where I'm going, but it's 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 a such a powerful sound. Um, and a connection to, to a place and a space that I've not been connected to before. And that instrument is the only the only vehicle that has allowed me to, to, to go there. Um, I'm really excited to see kind of how that continues to unfold. And I'll be heading back to Australia this fall. So it's one of the things on my list. It's like, okay, I, I want to spend some time on the land in the presence of the frequencies of didgeridoo.
1: But the the young man you've been doing those with, he's in Bend?
2: He's in Bend, yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, When you were in Western Australia, did you travel around much?
2: I stayed in Western Australia. Um, I traveled south more than I traveled north. I was there in the peak of summer. Yep. Um, Did not have a reliable car. Um, I spent a lot of time camping on the beach. I was very, very um, intrigued by being in a different hemisphere and the sky being different and the way that the sun rose and set. And there was a whole conversation that the just the cycle of a day had to say while I was there. And I was really in love with, like, the Margaret River area, right. very similar to where I grew up, Sonoma County.
1: Right, yeah, wines. Yep.
2: Yeah. That's <laughs> a great
1: wine stuff. You know, it was interesting that you ended up on the west coast of Australia because moving from Australia to here, for a long time I was always backwards because, in a, you know, growing up on the east coast of Australia… You know, the the ocean's always on your east. And you're going to have a sense of where the ocean is. And so when I moved to the west coast of America, I always had a sense of where the ocean was. But for me, that was east. So I always felt like I was going, if I was going north or south, I always was going, I felt like I was going south when I was going
2: north. It's total sense. Yeah, people were like, Perth? Why Perth? Don't you? And I was like, it's just Perth. That's That's where I was called to go. It's where I feel a really, really strong connection to the, the land there, um, you know, wander out. I would just kind of pick a spot on a map certain days and be like, that's where I'm going to drive to today. I don't know why. And I would drive out to the middle of nowhere and sit and listen. Um, I was in a shop one day at a, like a flea market there was rocks everywhere. I remember looking up on the shelf and on the very, way up high, there's like this little rock. I was like, can I see that? And she pulled it down. She's like, oh, I've had this for decades. Wait, I'm like, well, it's way up there. And she's like, it's interesting that you would pull that rock down. It was, it was given to me um, by a man up in the Northern Territory. And yeah, it, no one ever looks at it. I was like, I, I, I love it. Can I? can I buy it? And she's like, yeah. And I said, what is it? And she's like, it's mukite. I was like, oh. And I, I loved this little rock. It's, it's not very big. And during COVID, when I was here and spending a lot of time journeying with my drum with the horses, I decided I'm going to journey and meet the origins of this rock. I want to go to the origins of this rock. And um, when I went in is like this being appeared. And so clearly <laughs> I'm not a rock my name is Rugar and I would like you to address me like a being okay Rugar not a rock hi Rugar nice to meet you and he said thank you for picking me up I've been waiting for someone for so long to come along to come like along so that I could share my story okay what is your story and so it was like uh, like going through like a little Snapshot like a little time portal, poof, and all of a sudden we're on the bank of this beautiful stream. There's grass, and the stream is flowing, and it's it's crystal clear. There's beautiful red rocks in the stream. It feels cool. It, it's kind of like rolling grasslands with some steeps, and then my attention catches this like big rock in the bank on a turn of the stream and I'm looking at this rock and I'm looking at this rock and then everything starts to gradually dry up. The grass starts to die. The stream gets lower. Everything turns brown. Then it turns to nothing. It's just red dirt. The water stops flowing. And in that process, chunks of this rock had broken off and been carried downstream. And so I watched this, this place of, Rugar's origin go from being abundant and life-providing, life-sustaining, to desolate. And then Rugar takes me to him, and I can see his little shape, and he's sitting in a dry stream bed, and I see a hand pick him up, and then he just shares this feeling of like all of this travel, like all of this movement, and, and then he arrives on this shelf. Thank you for sharing your beautiful story, Rugar. And he said, do you not see the symbolism in it? Do you not see the parallel? Why you have me? No, not right now. Sit on it and think about it. So I sat back for, I was, I was like, hmm, that was the first time a rock had had, had a name. Um, <laughs> and what Came from that, and I, I journey with Rugar and to Rugar's place of origin fairly frequently. Um, it's a deep well. That stream is like a, a well of wisdom. You can go sit there and things will just bubble out of the water there um, when I need clarification on something. But was that as humankind evolved— and we moved away from nature. We moved away from horses. We moved away from being on the land. We, we lost that connection, that reverence, that, that necessity to maintain the land's health, the land's vitality. And that that was an important thing in my life to talk about, to share with others, to bring into the things that I was teaching and offering that we have to remember— we are not the supreme beings on this planet. We are, we are a part of this entire web, and we have had a major effect on the health of the rest of the web. And that at this point, it is our responsibility alone to try to weave that web back into a structure that can provide nourishment and sustain the entire web, And that rocks, the elementals, um, even the trees, they stand for a really long time and watch what we do. And they carry these memories. And that all around there are beings like Rugar who we might have in our homes. And they're with us because they have a story to share. Mm -hmm. Even if you can't hear them or see a picture that they're trying to show you, they carry the energy signature of remembering that we have to come back to nature, that we have to revitalize this planet that we call home because life only works if we can breathe the air and drink the water and gather food. Um, Yeah, so Rugar the rock from Australia. um, So that was a lot of my teaching while I traveled was from the land was from, you know, sitting at the pinnacles and, uh, you know, uh, just outside of Cervantes. And, and those, they're like pillars rising out of the sand in um, eastern California. We have something at Mono Lake called Tufas, and the pinnacles are kind of like Tufas. They're like rock mineral formations that rise out. And they, they all have stories they have different wisdoms to drop it. And some of them are really lighthearted. Like they're not profound. They're just, it's just like, this is my story and this is my experience. And some of them you're like, whoa, what did that rock? What did that formation just say to me? Um, So the land in my travels, the land was my biggest teacher. Um, And I was able to accept that in those travels come across other people that are like, oh yeah, I talked to rocks. I talked to, like, I was no longer strange. Right. It was, it, oh, there are places where this is normal. And I wonder if people back home are looking for a community where this can be normal. I bet there are people around me in my life who also have experienced things like this, who haven't had a place to share it. Yeah, they're definitely those people have started to show up and like, wow, I didn't know I wasn't the only one. And so opportunities like your podcast are great. I know for me, getting to listen to a lot of your guests' stories, it's like, oh, yay. There are people all over the world and they're totally comfortable and confident to come and talk about it and that that will hopefully ignite, you know, courage for exponential growth of this kind of sharing. Like, let's talk about it. Let's sit in it and let's make it normal. Let's take the woo-woo out of it because it's not. It's what we naturally do as beings, communicate through our senses.
1: Yeah, that's been, for me, that's been one of the, probably the biggest fun part of the whole podcast is people not feeling alone in their views or their experiences or you know because these aren't the conversations a lot of people have and and yeah that's I've, I've heard it from quite a few people like you know that's what they've loved about the podcast is people sharing stories like yours even though i think Rugo might be the best story i've heard in the podcast not that not that we're we're judging and quantifying, but it's.
2: I'll have to send you a picture of Rugar.
1: I'd love to see a picture of Rugar. <laughs> um, wow. Okay, so I have a question for you. It came up to me while you're talking about Rugar, and it's something I've thought about before. So, you mentioned uh, previous lives and things like that. Do you do you think there is a um, like a sequential order to where you'll be a rock and then you'll be a tree and then you'll be an animal then you'll be a human or do you think you can like your next time around you might be a rock you know because i've i've had it explained to me like you know when you're a rock you have to learn just to sit and like if you're a tree you learn how to Take in energy from the sun, but you still have to sit. You know, do you do you and I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this, but what what do you do you think there's a sequential order to things or you could be anything next time?
2: I think you could be anything next time.
1: Mm, okay
2: I think that I think that just that phrasing alone, right? We're human and so we do a lot of thinking. Our cognition is the one thing as a human, choosing to come in as a human, that we are here to learn about, how to be aware of our thoughts, how to be grateful for the ability to create complex thoughts and to have a brain that's evolved, but to be able to come to the place which I I don't even know if in my life I'll get to it. I think very few human beings do where you can just accept that we will never know and that um, the need to try to figure it out is the lesson, to to not need to figure it out anymore. And Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh
1: So so you're saying I should stop pondering that question?
2: (laughs) You know, I think maybe ponder it in a in a different way, ponder it through a sense, like have the question and send the question out and see if you can get an answer to the question through sound. Can you get an answer to the question through feel like through kinesthetic touch, like ask the question from a different place in the body, not from mm, the mind.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was, I think that could be some of the best advice I've ever received about anything. That's, I need to think about that more because I'm, very much in my head quantifying and analyzing and and it helps me in definitely helps me in some places and it hinders me in others but uh, yeah i need to do that that's
2: do you have yeah. a favorite horse or a, maybe not a favorite that's that's a very particular word do you have a horse in your life right now that you feel is a guide like the guide yes yes Okay, so that question, this is this is what I love. This, this lights my fire, what I love about horses. When you start to do sensory work with horses, so you take these big questions or little questions, curiosities, and you go to the horse and you set the intention that you're going to put that question out, but that you're going to put the question out And you're going to be with it in each sense. And you do this in the presence of the horses. So I am curious, are lifetimes sequential? Will you share your understanding of that with me, horse, nature, self? And then you sit and you allow what you hear. Like You focus, I'm going to hear the answer through the sounds around me. I'm going to feel the answer. I'm going to smell and taste the answer. I'm going to turn my eyes off and stop needing to see the answer because sight is attached to cognition. When we let those other senses, and and then that the other sense, the most valuable sense, which is the sense of feeling out from the whole being, like I see it like a jellyfish. Like if from from your center here, it's your navel, Pico. It's like a jellyfish that radiates out and, and feels with all of its tentacles. Feel the answer. And then feel into the answer again in two months. And then again in two years. And feel how that answer evolves and shifts and is relevant to this time in life. And the horses, when you do this with horses, they you it's this look and they're like, they get it. Look it. The human gets it. And then they start to unlock doors and unlock places in our mind that have become closed or or constricted because of our conditioning. They just the horses just are like, Great, we'll just open that up for you. Let let's start to let stuff flow. Their presence is so magical. And when you take them and what they have to talk to us about and share and you add it to this returning to our natural sense of our natural sense of processing, our senses, magic can happen. So the guide horse, the guide horses are always have some pretty, uh pretty explosive information to share.
1: That was, that was, that was awesome. That was awesome. Um, You know, there was a book I read a number of years ago and it was about, Uh, It was about shamans and it was about how, you know, practices you can do and things like that. And it's interesting, one of the practices they say to do was to go out and sit in nature. And each time you sit in nature, use a different sense. Like one time go out and sit there and just listen. One time go out there and sit there and see. One time go out there and sit there and feel and just feel feel with your body. And I've talked about it before on the podcast. There's a book I've read called Radical Wholeness. And in that book, they talk about a West African tribe called the Anglo-Iwe tribe. And they have this word that they called "sasalalame," which translates into English as feel, feel with the flesh from the inside out. And that's that, that jellyfish thing you're talking about.
2: Yeah. The first, the first skill that when... When a new human comes out to my facility, we do a sensory exercise in the horse paddock, but not with the horses where everyone turns in words, eyes off, hearing, feeling, smelling, tasting. And it's it's the teaching that, do you hear the sounds? So allow yourself to hear the sounds and then feel deeper. What are the sounds sharing with you about what's happening? What does the environment feel like? Did the birds go silent because it's nap time? Or did the birds just go silent because there's a predator? Are the birds talking and just chattering, having communication about food? Or are the birds talking and giving a warning? There's a feeling. The wind can be still, but you can feel chaos on your skin. Or it can be so chaotically windy and feel absolutely serene. And teaching humans, how to remember that when we were hunters and gatherers, we used our entire sensory body to take information in. It hit that that center place, pico, right behind our navel, our intuitive knowledge system. It traveled up to our heart. It did this really quick check of coherence. And then our brain got a signal and, and sent a neurochemical out to the rest of the body and we acted. Horses never stopped doing this. We did it when we were really young, when we were infants, and some of us got to do it for, you know, longer. And there are tribes around the world who still live that way. So it's, it's not that it's gone, it's just a remembering. Um, so when you tap people into this and then you draw the comparison that oh, this is what horses have to teach us, is this remembering how to come home to our natural way of perceiving the world. And then your whole world around you changes when you perceive that way. And so when we actually then end up in with the horses, the first thing that I do is I have people close their eyes, and we do blind experiencing, and learning how to meet a horse from a place where vision is not included. Where And when you take away sight, you take away the... Ability to look at a physical behavior and put a judgment on it, to look at a physical behavior and put an expectation, to start to create a story. So when people have stories about horses, like this horse is a biter, or this horse does this, when we close the eyes, you get to just come into your body and be like, wow, I'm feeling really nervous. Why? Well, because he bites. Does he feel like he's biting right now? Well, no. What is his, What does the muscle under your hands feel like? Well, it's soft. Okay. Can you breathe into that softness? What does that softness feel like? People are given the opportunity to start rebuilding the stories they tell about the horse, Mm. about themselves, about the situations they're in. When we turn the eyes off and we return to that natural perception system, we're gifted the most beautiful self-realizations co-created by horse because horse is... Uh, quite a support in the work um so play with that with your horses if you feel comfortable
1: oh i'm i'm itching to do it right now actually uh wow yeah that last five minutes of conversation there it's like it's it's just like lined up a whole lot of things i've been thinking about or been aware of i was reading i think i was reading a book there was a book, maybe I was listening to a book recently, and I'm talking about how your gut senses things way ahead of your brain. And I was talking about what, exactly what you said. You, your gut sends messages to your heart, which sends messages to your brain. Then your brain does the, the chemical thing after that, but the gut's way, way ahead of the rest of it. There was a, uh, I don't know if it was the same book, but they were talking about, um, they did a study on Wall Street stockbrokers. Who, and they looked at who made the most money, which means who made the best trades. And those trades are almost instant, like, yes, buy that, sell that. Uh, uh, uh. And the people who could feel their own heartbeat were the ones who made the most money. You know, so they were in their, in their bodies and not in their heads. And so that, that, that gut was happening first.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, and this this works both ways. That's That's my newest teaching from the horses, is that the horses, although they all still live closely to this sensory perception system, when horses have gone through experiences with human beings that have created a sense of where they don't have control of, of their own being, of their own experience. And being in tune to their senses has been detrimental because it either has created physical pain or emotional pain or cognitive resistance. They, they go into this space where they start to live in their mind when humans come around, when, when they're out by themselves, they're very happy to return to a congruent place of being. Yeah, but you know yeah. they can just feel a car pull into the barn and mm-hmm. everything starts to shift. Yep. They pull out of congruence and move into their mind. And to see that parallel in you know people with anxiety and horses with anxiety, and typically the horses that have anxiety end up with people with anxiety. So they can work through this space of not being in the body. And why are we not in the body? And what does it feel like to come into the body? And what sense is the sense that makes us feel most safe to first re-enter? And that the horses, so humans are on a journey, and one of the programs that I facilitate, it's all the work with physical horses, is called Journey Inward with Medicine Horse. And it's two journeys. It's the journey of the human back into themselves, and then it's the journey of the horse back to their true essence before humans created all of the the attachments or places that we tug at horses, you know, energetically. And to watch horses come through that process and to then hear some of the things that they're saying now um, gelding is a really emotionally and energetically traumatic process for horses and the geldings carry a lot of them because the, the sharings I've received from the geldings that I'm interacting with are coming from a place of gelding, like uh, I horse. We have horses, individual beings and we have horse, which is all the horses that ever were all the horses that will ever be. And all the horses like that the, are, it's the
1: big the body, collective, the collective consciousness yes. of horses in general. Yes.
2: So then there are experiences that are a collective experience like that. And gelding is a collective experience that lots of horses throughout all of time have experienced. Same with mares foaling and their children just being taken away with no explanation. Horses would like things to just be explained to them. In February, one of the horses in my herd said, why don't you being humans, just talk to us the way you talk to family? Why don't you just tell us, hey, I'm going on a trip, and I'll be back, and so and so is going to watch you? Or, hey, we're just running to the vet, and this is what's going to happen. It's probably going to create some pain. Or, hey, my life situation is changing. I'm leaving for college. This is happening right now with a couple of my horses. Um, I love you. And... I'm going to always hold space for you and and to have this actual conversation and experience that we would have with a human. You know, when, when a child leaves for school, the parents and the child, that that's a, a a multi-year conversation and experience. And it transcends beyond the child actually leaving the home and going to school. Like there's, there's still this, this connection that is in conversation happening and with animals as humans, we've decided that they don't need that or they don't get to have that. Um, it's not important. It's not even on our, on our radar. And s- um, so we've started, we started to work in a space of collective healing for these conversation first. And it's not even healing. It's, it's conversation to acceptance. Acceptance is the place where we find healing. When we can accept something... It just is, and we're allowed to integrate it in and then continue to move forward. That's that's what that process is. Well, the horses need that too. And I didn't, that, that's like really is the newest thing that I'm like, whoa. So you guys have traumas that now we have the skill set because we can communicate to you through this sensory system by feeling into the environment, feeling into the different senses in the energy field, and then forming a conversation, a piece of knowledge, we do it in a bubble, and we send that bubble over to the horse and allow it to enter their central channel of energy. And then the horse can share back with us. And some horses, just like some people, some horses are visual. So you can send them images, and -hmm. they pick up images. Some people see images a lot. Some people are really auditory. Some horses will hear words, and it's not... The actual words that they understand it's the energetic signature of the words some horses feel things primarily so it's like okay we want to walk out there to go and you know we want to go take a ride um, in the pasture but the horse is still just seeing the image of like i'm standing here eating the hay i don't want to leave the hay I'm not going out there. It's like, well, what does it feel like to eat your favorite food? Ooh, I love cheese. Okay, well, feel what it feels like to eat cheese. Like, oh, it's so satisfying. And then share that feeling with the image of the pasture ride with the horse. And if that horse is a kinesthetic learner or receiver, they're like, oh, we're gonna go have this wonderful response of eating lush grass and I can see the picture and they connect those. So you have to learn, does a horse receive information? through images, through sound, through feel. How do I receive information? Images, sound, feel. It's always a combination, but you have like primary ways Mm -hmm. of taking that in. And then how do I send? Am I good at sending images? I have to practice that. Am I good at sending feelings? Wow, I'm really out of touch with my body. I don't even know what it feels like to feel that.
1: Mm.
2: And then every horse is different. So working with lots of horses is so great for humans because you get to learn just what you have to learn with other people. How do you interact with different preferences, different learning styles? Um, and it's, it's beyond that space of cognition, which is where I feel like f- for the last hundred years, we've been so focused in the cognitive piece. And it's important, but we're animals and bodies, and it's about, it's about the senses. And... Um, so the horses have just been sharing sharing things about well we need help now too. So since you guys have figured it out, can you help us now? Some days the horse is like it's a me day or okay human it's a you day. We'll support you in your work and today I need support in my work and really neat stuff. Again, I'm always so excited to go out and work with horses cuz I have no idea what's going to come up. Maybe it'll be a lesson where we ask the horse to leave the paddock and walk over to the, um, we we built a medicine wheel on the property out of the round pen because I didn't like what the round pen represented. And it's a really old historic property with this beautiful, tall, wooden round pen. so we shifted the space. We use it as a conversation space with horses and the horses have to choose to leave the paddock and choose to walk down there and choose to line up at the mounting block. And maybe we go on a ride and that's what our session is. Or, Maybe our session will be, we end up sitting on the dirt underneath the horse crying because we feel this overwhelming sense of grief and lack of control and anger during the gelding process because he could feel it. I have a question you know? about that. Yeah.
1: About, <coughs> about the gelding process... Um, is there a way it can be done where it's less detrimental?
2: What they've shared is, again, they just want to be communicated. Like, this is what's going to happen. Okay. And this is why. And that really, a gelding, a birth, a separation of mare and foal, those are initiations. Those are rites of passage-type acts. Like, those those types of experiences should have some level of ceremony around them. Mm. Reverence, honor for what is taking place and an agreement or an acknowledgement of how significant those acts are. And that just that in itself, the horses have shared is enough. Because if we started to do that for situations that seem to be just routine or that are routine, maybe we would start to do that for the situations in our lives that are routine. You know, we would walk through our life in a space of ceremony, being grateful that we can turn on a faucet and we have clean drinking water. Having a sense of ceremony when you wake up in the morning and you take a breath and go, I get another day. This, this, Just having reverence and the horses understand that there is suffering and that that's one of nature's laws. Suffering is part of life and that they're not asking for that to be removed, but they're asking that we step up and we become accountable and aware of our role in the suffering that we cause because humans create quite a bit of suffering for the natural world and for our fellow, you know, human brothers and sisters from a space of just unconscious choice where we're not fully aware of what the repercussions are when we do something. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, that gives me something to think about. Um, I should get to your questions that you chose before we get too much further along here. Um, and you may have...
2: Yeah, answered some of them. May
1: have answered some of them, but the first one that you chose, was: what was your biggest failure and how has it helped you?
2: My biggest failure, which wasn't a failure... Um, at the time i felt like it was a, i was a failure was closing down my natural horsemanship business and program harmony with horses and stepping into this spirit led heartfelt space of exploration and knowing that i was walking away from financial stability that i was walking away from commitments that i had to clients and that I, you know, relationships that were very valued, but that were only going to continue if I stayed in this certain structure. And that was hard. It felt like I'd let a lot of people down. I'd let myself down. I hadn't followed through with something. Um, I don't like to quit. I don't like to quit. I'm okay with failing. Like stuff is going to go wrong. That's how you learn. But that was me choosing to end a cycle. And that was the biggest teaching in the teaching of the sacred hoop of the medicine wheel was that there is always going to be death finality closure in order for something new to come in and that i, I had to learn to be okay and to be confident to be to courageously step into those places of like i'm going to say no i'm going to decide to change my life course because a horse said something to me in a field, and that makes absolutely no sense to a whole bunch of people. But I'm going to do it. So that, I feel like, was my biggest failure. But it led to what I get to do now. So again, I'm so grateful that I chose to step away from that that chapter of my life.
1: You once, you know, I was going to ask you this before. I forgot to. You mentioned the medicine wheel again. Can you tell us about the medicine wheel?
2: Yeah. So... I'm going to share my my understanding and my interpretation of the medicine wheel, um, which it represents the cycle that is alive and active in all things. It is the stage of birth, of growth, of maturity, and of death, and then returning back to the cycle. So we go through these these experiences, the seasons do it, right? We do it personally as humans going from infants to elders to spirit and back to infants, or maybe we come back as a Rugar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we do it in our jobs. We do it in relationships. And and in an earth-based system, this doesn't need to be even taught to young people, because they're living in a societal structure where every act, every day is based off that cycle. Like it's it's spring, so we're focused on planting things. We're focused, you know, every season had a task for survival. So the understanding that life is cyclical was just known from the time you were very small and woven into your understanding of a life walk. What I found as I moved into my, you know, the last decade of my life was we don't learn that in a modern Western society. And so we are actually taught to avoid or to fear the, the cycle of finality which is necessary, it's absolutely necessary to embrace that, which includes physical death, getting to have a relationship with the death of animals, the death of humans, the, the death of jobs, being like, wow, I went to school for this, and I rose to this place in the company, and I was making X amount of money, or I got this public recognition, but this doesn't work for me anymore. I'm stressed, I'm angry, I have a disease now. I'm pulling out. I'm going to end this chapter because I'm not allowing, I'm not, I'm not looking at what's happening and letting the natural flow ha- you know, occur. So the medicine wheel is, is a wheel. It keeps turning. And we use it in the work that we do in Choice Tribe to gauge, you know, where, where are you right now? Are you in a place of new beginnings in your work life? Are you in a place of new beginnings in a relationship? Are you in a place of new beginnings with your connection to spirituality or, you know, in any facet of life? And then knowing that at any given moment in our life, we are at a different place on the medicine wheel in different areas of our life. Mm. And that if we find that we're, we're trying to stay in one area, we're like, I don't want this to end, or I'm afraid of what will happen— you should be afraid of what you're holding yourself back from. It could be so great to move through that last stage. So the medicine wheel is this teaching of just allowing flow, continual movement. Everything is continually moving. If we try, if we are trying to be still, we are fighting the laws of nature. The law of nature is that that circle.
1: Wow, that was that was very cool. I'm glad I asked that question. Uh, I was taking notes right then. Okay, let's get back to your, sorry, the questions you chose. Uh, If you could spread, and you may have said this already, but if you could spread a message, uh, one that people would listen to, what would that be?
2: Time is the most valuable currency. Choose to spend the time that you have in this body doing what you love, doing what your heart calls you to do. Be absolutely steadfast in following whatever that calling is as crazy and unreasonable and out of the context of societal norms as it may be. Follow it. We only get so much time, and we don't know how much time we have left. So how are you using it? You know, We don't get to take anything with us. We only have time.
1: Yes, that's a great reminder. Um, Next question would be, what's the most worthwhile thing you've done um, that you've put your time into, something that changed the course of your life?
2: Following all of the little signs, all the synchronicities, all the dreams, all the by-chance meetings, following all of those things since I was little put a lot of time into that and a lot of the time i do probably look quite quite irresponsible or totally out of my mind for the choices that i make but that has become my guidance system so i spend a lot of time you know the last 11 days every day for 11 days i have been gifted an owl feather on my property. So after day three, I was like, okay, I'm paying attention. Owl medicine. I sat in that. I drew, you know, I called upon the energy of owl and asked, What what are you asking me to pay attention to? What are you what are you guiding me towards? So spending time for me, noticing when the earth or the spirits are saying, Jordana. Uh, hello, we're trying to point something out to you and you need to take some time to focus on this because I always have time. I got to get on and answer emails. I need to go out and teach a session, right? But taking the time to sit with those signs, to sit with those messages that are coming from the places that we cannot see, that's the most worthwhile thing I've done.
1: Mm. Wow. I'm, <laughs> I'm just loving this conversation <laughs> with you, by the way. Um, Next question you chose, what do you do to relieve stress or recharge your batteries?
2: I walk barefoot on the earth. That's what I do. I walk barefoot on the earth and sit up against a tree and ask a tree or a rock or a river, whatever whatever I'm called to be near, can you share with me what it feels like to be you? can you share the feeling of your energy flow? And it's just, it's, it's a full recharge. Like if you plugged a Dewalt battery into a charger, like that's the image mm-hmm. that I've been shown is like, it's why the horses spend time with the trees too, and they're recharging. It's, it's this um, like balancing for them. And so just being able to be against these, these stationary or these elemental forces Um, barefoot, in contact, letting my body, which is the body of those objects or those those beings come back together. And it's like, oh, yeah, (sighs) big, deep breath. What a gift it is to be human. Gift.
1: Wow. Okay, the next question is going to be – it's an interesting one because – the, the question is, what's one common myth in your profession that you wish to debunk, but first you would have to describe what the hell is your profession?
2: So at this point, my understanding of the work I do is that I teach congruent communication with humans, So I teach humans how to communicate congruently within themselves. Are your mind, body, heart, and spirit working cooperatively, and are they fairly balanced? I then teach horses how to work through that, horses who come into the program who have never had a choice, who are in some way maybe incongruent. And then I teach horses and humans to do that together. I teach groups how to do that. So congruent communication coach, um, but horses are the inspiration for all this. So if you were going to go into the field of working with horses in any capacity, what I would advise people would be to let go of the belief that horses communicate any differently than we do. Horses... Communicate in the most authentic version of communication through the sensory system. It is us who has forgotten and needs to remember and reattune to our sensory communication. And that the horses fully comprehend all that we comprehend just through a different lens. And it's our responsibility to return back to a connection with nature so that we can see it from that standpoint too. Not to try to shape in any way the horse's perception or reception of information to fit the current human model because the current human model of understanding and communicating in general is not natural. So horses totally get what we, what we get. They, they, they have very large thoughts. Very, they can put together big concepts. They can show very intricate stories of the passage of time and of the feelings attached to certain situations and how it led to other experiences in their life. And they are just waiting for us to say, oh, I turned on the switch to my sensory communication system. And then they're like, great. Great. So now we can have a free-flowing conversation. Mm -hmm. And the moment that our senses start to get, the volume gets turned down, which is when we slip out of the present moment, when we slip out of our body, the horses, it seems like all of a sudden we we lose the ability to communicate. It just got turned down. So horses have complex thoughts. They can communicate just the way we do.
1: Wow says so that. <laughs> that was very, very cool. I've got so much out of this conversation. It's not funny. I got a whole list of stuff I gotta do. Um and your last question that you chose was what's your relationship like with fear? The million dollar question.
2: To, right. I used to avoid fear. It just created so much anxiety in me. because um, it was the unknown. What's gonna happen? I don't know. Now, whenever I feel fear. I'm like running towards it because it's the packaging around a a reward or a great teaching. Like fear is what I get to unwrap to get to the thing that's going to be the awesome nugget of, you know, addition to my life. So, you know, and the first big fear that I had to really overcome was uh, the fear of, of, you know, death, of losing somebody that I loved and, feeling that that was going to be final. And when it wasn't final, when they showed up in my dreams and then started showing me things, uh, that was for me a big realization that that fear was a choice, coming back to the choice that you have a choice in life. I was in a space of choosing to be fearful about the circumstance of death and dying because I didn't—it was unknown. There was no experiences I had around it, no one to talk to about it, Um, no sense of understanding it in my body because I'd been the presence of it or witnessed it. And then once I'd gone through that experience, the fear went away. And it allowed me to start seeing other situations in my life where fear was present as just— the fear was based in my vantage from my vantage point from my perspective and if i stepped over here and i looked at it from over here would i still be fearful maybe a little bit what about over here oh not at all how does you know how does the tree view death how does it just it just shifted so now when fear pops up in my life i am like ooh oh this is going to be an ex- interesting experience i'll probably have some failures in it but let's let's move into the fear and see what what beautiful little nugget or prize I get to unwrap from the fear experience.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that whole, the whole wrapping your head around that we are just energetic beings experiencing a physical reality and that we don't die, you just lose this, this physical existence uh that one takes a bit of getting your head around but 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 you're right though that's not getting your head around that is the cause of fear and when you can get your head around that and i've had some experiences with not you know i've had some experiences with with letting go of this physical reality and existing just as an energetic presence and it's yeah I'm I'm I don't think I'm quite fully there yet as in I'm still gonna cling on this thing but I'm I'm getting more aware of it and you yeah, know I think I think it's a probably a process
2: the horses again the animals are just <clears throat> I'm always sad when it's time to transition a being whether it's a human or or an animal or even cutting down a tree when I go to cut firewood like that's a transition that's a those are that's a taking of separation of spirit and form Um, but sitting and getting to be with horses when they make that separation so beautiful it's it just it's it's sad, but there's something that feels it's comfortable. It's familiar. It's it's the remembering from lifetimes, from the memories of all of our you know ancestors in our DNA that life is just a part of that cycle, a part of that medicine wheel, and um, the animals aren't attached to their bodies the way we are, and you go back. You know, a thousand years less than that, we weren't attached to our bodies the way we are now because we grew up in, surrounded by death. Death happened often. We had to kill our food. So we, we had this relationship with taking life and seeing animal turning into food. We had this relationship with young people, with children and infants dying because we didn't have medical care. Like, we had this relationship with death, so we felt it in our body, from the time we were really little, that it was just this transition of worlds. There's no death, only a transition of worlds. It's a Chief Seattle quote that every time someone or something passes, it's like, right, just a change in shape, just a change in form. Right. Um, And so when you get to tap into your senses and start to communicate with the horses or with the natural world in that way, that's than an affirmation of that same knowing. Like, right, oh, I'm just an energy in a form. I'm not attached to the form because I'm not even even moving. I'm not doing any body language cues to the horse. I'm literally creating a picture with a sensation or phrase in my mind, and I'm sending it to them in a bubble. And then now the horse is trotting a circle around me, but I haven't cued them to do that. I sent the image. And that's that really drives home that knowing of, oh, I'm not my body. I don't need my, this this flesh suit to be able to experience what life is. It's, it's happening. It's, it's the animation inside that's actually life.
1: Wowzers. This has been such a fun conversation. Um, how do people... Uh, find out more about you or get a hold of you? Um,
2: We, our website is www.choicetribe.com. We've got two social media. So choice tribe on Instagram and Facebook, which offers information and kind of happenings on the whole of what we do. And then choice horsemanship is the focus of the work we do directly with the horses and humans. So, that would be how.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been one of the coolest conversations I've had on the podcast, and I've had some pretty cool conversations, and it was actually it wasn't that much of a conversation. I just mostly listened and um, it, that was profound. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. i This was such a gift, and uh, before we got on, I told you, you know. I, when I first heard I heard your first podcast, I was like, I'm going to be on the Workshiller podcast. It was just a feeling in me. And so this is a, a dream come true. I'm so grateful to have gotten to share with you today and look forward to sharing with you in the future.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for everything you shared. And for you guys at home, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Journey on Podcast. Hey.
0: Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.